If you would this morning turn with me to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7. Begin reading this morning in verse 11, Ezra chapter 7, verse 11. It says, Now this is the copy of the letter that the king Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, even a scribe of the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and at such a time. I make a decree that all they of the people of Israel and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. For as much as thou art sent of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God, which is in thine hand, and to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered unto the God of Israel, whose habitation is in Jerusalem. And all the silver and gold that thou canst find in all the province of Babylon with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests, offering willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem. That thou mayest buy speedily with this money bullocks, rams, lambs, with their meat offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them upon the altar of the house of your God which is in Jerusalem. And whatsoever shall seem good to thee and to thy brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold that they do after the will of your God. It says, The vessels also that are given thee for the service of the house of thy God, those deliver thou before the God of Jerusalem. And whatsoever more shall be needful for the house of thy God, which thou shalt have occasion to bestow, bestow it out of the king's treasure house. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, do make a decree to all the treasurers which are beyond the river, that whatsoever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, shall require of you, it be done speedily. Unto a hundred talents of silver, and to a hundred measures of wheat, to a hundred baths of wine, and to a hundred baths of oil, and salt, without prescribing how much. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? For those who know Bible history, you know that the children of Israel, due to their sin, had been cast into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They had dwelt in the land of Canaan for 490 years, and God had given them commandment that of every seventh year they were to give their land rest so that the land could be restored. In those days and times, there weren't fertilizers and such to restore minerals and such to land, and so the land needed its rest. And obviously, they didn't have to do this nationwide all the seventh year. The same year, they could rotate. Say, if you owned uh, 100 acres, you could uh, portion that off and always have increase, always have fruit to come. But the children of Israel, like us, were very greedy and did not trust that the Lord would provide for them. Now, remember, back in their wilderness journeys, the Lord had told them that they would have manna six days. On the seventh day, there would be no manna. But on the sixth day, they were to take up all the manna they would need for that day and for the next. And uh, the children of Israel, of course, did not obey. But they went out and gathered up all that they could the very first time they saw it. And, of course, that which they did not use the first day, when they came the next morning, it already had worms in it and it stank. Now they could lay up, though, on Friday for Saturday, and that would not stink. The Lord would preserve it, just as he had told them that he would. 
So the children of Israel had already seen the provision of God. They had seen where he had provided for them. And then the time came when they were tired of the manna, so they complained to God, and God gave them quail. In fact, God was angry with them. He says, I'm going to give you so much quail. He said, it's fine. going to be coming out of your nose. <laughs> In other words, you're going to eat so much quail, you won't be able to stand it anymore. Uh, you know, I like chicken. And right now, well, for several years, beef prices are kind of high. Uh, so we don't eat a lot of beef in our house, and there's times that I kind of feel like the children of Israel uh, would quail regarding chicken. Uh, there's times that I just like a little beef thrown in. Uh, but anyway, that's not Lydia's fault. That's inflation and, and so forth. But anyway, it is what it is. But I can a little bit understand. So the children of Israel, they had seen God's provision over and over again. For 40 years, they wore the same clothes that never wore out. I'd love that. I mean, I'm wearing suits that are uh, almost 12 years old. In fact, the one I'm wearing today, I think I bought about 12 years ago. Uh, so I'm, I guess, uh, one-fourth there on some of mine, but I don't wear them every day, obviously. Their shoes never wore out. Think about that. <clears throat> I wear, wear fairly expensive shoes because of a uh, foot problem, but I don't expect them to last for 40 years if I was wearing them every day, walking on hard terrain like they were. So here they were, walking hard terrain, wearing clothes in uh, you know, primitive conditions, and the Lord preserved those clothes and those shoes for 40 years. And again, every day for 40 years, except for the Sabbath, God rained down manna, but enough for the Sabbath as well. So God provided. When they came to a place where there were bitter waters, God gave commandment to take a particular tree and cast in the waters, and the waters were made sweet. On another occasion, they come to a place where there was no water, and so Moses was commanded by God to smite a rock. And out of that rock came forth enough water to feed over two million people. There was another occasion they came to a rock. Once again, no water. And so the Lord commanded Moses to speak to the rock. The first time he was to smite the rock. The second time he was to speak to the rock. Moses was aggravated at this moment, though. The children of Israel, as you know, were a very uh, stiff-necked people. And they were hard for Moses to deal with. And he's very frustrated. And he doesn't mind what the Lord tells him. So Moses stands before the people and says, here you rebels, must we, meaning me and God, must we fetch you water out of the rock? And he took his rod and he smote the rock. Now the Bible says that rock which followed them, capital R, 1 Corinthians 10, that rock which followed them was Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was smitten once at Calvary, never to be smitten again. So the Lord was smitten that first time by Moses, and that was right. But for Moses to do it the second time was wrong. And God was so specific about that, and it was so important to God, that that prevented Moses from entering to the land of Israel. In fact, Moses would come before God at least twice and ask the Lord to reconsider and allow him to go into the land. And the Lord said no. He said, because you did not sanctify me before the people. Uh, that punishment was upon him. And so here we find that when Moses was 120, God took him up in the mount. He went to Pisgah, and there he saw all the land of Canaan. And the Bible says that his natural uh, eyesight uh, was still good. His strength was not abated, and there Moses died, and God buried him. So there was just God and Moses up there, and God was the undertaker. God took care of the burial. I wish he'd do that for me, so Hopewell wouldn't get the money. But anyway, uh, so God, here's Moses, uh, didn't obey the Lord. And so there was great consequence for that. Children of Israel, for 490 years, do not do as God commands. So after 490 years, God says, my land shall have its Sabbath. So there's going to be 70 years, one-seventh of the time you've been in the land of Canaan, that you, the land will have its rest. And here's how it's going to have its rest. You're going to be conquered 
by the Babylonians, a nation from the north. They're going to come and conquer you, and you're going to dwell for 70 years with them. And Jeremiah, God tells them through the mouth of Jeremiah, they're to pray for the peace of Babylon. Well, why? Because that's where they were going to live. He says, you pray for the peace of this place, you build houses, you marry wives, you have children, and you have your children marry wives and husbands. And so that's what God commands them because they're going to be there for 70 years. In other words, settle in. Don't think you're coming out of there. Many prophets would uh, arise that God did not send. And they would say this was not going to happen. And God said, I didn't send those prophets. I didn't command their words. And so the children of Israel would not listen to Jeremiah. And of course, everything that God had said through Jeremiah had come to pass. And the children of Israel went in for 70 years. Now, after 70 years, God in a very, God in a very miraculous way raises up another empire. Now, the Babylonian Empire at that point was so strong that when you read in the book of Daniel that when, the, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar walked, the earth trembled. Now, that didn't literally mean that the earth trembled. It just means that people had such fear and reverence for Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon that when he spoke or he moved, the whole earth took notice. Well, now, all of a sudden, you're going to find another nation empire rise up against them. The Medo-Persian Empire is going to rise up in one night and overcome the Babylonians and the children of Israel be set free. So the Medo-Persian Empire, they rise up, and we find this in uh, Daniel chapter 5. And in Daniel chapter 5, you find a king by the name of Belshazzar, and he's sitting in his house making a drunken feast. And in the middle of that drunken feast, he calls for the silver and the gold from the house of God to be brought in for that drunken feast. And while he's sitting there drinking out of the vessels of God's house, there appeared the hand of a man that began to write upon the wall. It basically said this. It says that you have been found wanting, and your kingdom shall be taken from you this night. And as God is writing upon the wall, the Bible says, you find this in the book of Isaiah, that the Medo-Persian Empire came in through the two-leaved gates, uh, bronze gates with leaves inscribed on them. And what it was, you had a major river coming into the city of Babylon, and you had these gates, and so ships would come into that city. Now, the walls of Babylon were so wide that seven chariots could race along the tops of the walls of the city of Babylon. So there was no way to penetrate those walls militarily. So the Medo-Persian Empire, talk about civil engineering, they redirect the Euphrates River. And so they just walk right under those leave gates, and Belshazzar is slain that night. And the kingdom is taken from him, and now the children of Israel are set free. Because you're going to find that long before the Medo-Persian Empire is raised up, that God prophesied in the book of Isaiah that they would have a king by the name of Cyrus. And Cyrus, king of Persia, was going to be kindly minded towards the children of Israel. And that's going to uh, progress with Darius and now all the way down here to Artaxerxes. So in uh, Ezra chapter 7, you're going to find this man, Ezra, a very interesting man, he is a scribe. Now, in this day and time, scribes are highly respected. You may recall in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that scribes were not respected. By that time, they had become despised because they were mishandling the word of God. Now, a scribe in Bible days was not somebody who just wrote down the word of God. They did do that. But they also were experts in interpreting the law of God and also teaching the law of God. So they preserved it. They also taught it. And they also spoke. So they were effective teachers of the word of God. In fact, the Bible says here of this man, Ezra, verse 6, he was a ready scribe. That means he was a very skillful scribe. And notice what it says about him in verse 10. He says, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. 
So here's Ezra. He has a heart that he prepared. Now, obviously, before he could prepare his heart, God had to give him a clean heart. God prepared his heart, and now Ezra's going to do his job of preparing his heart. You know, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter uh, 16 that there was a woman named Lydia of the city of Thyatira who lived there at Philippi. It says, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended the things which were spoken by Paul. God opened her heart. God regenerated her. But she was sitting in the right place at the right time. She was at a place of worship at the right time. And so when uh, Paul comes, God opened her heart. But what does Lydia do? She's got her heart prepared. Uh, she's prepared for uh, meeting with the Lord. And so she gets the gospel preached to her that day, and she has a prepared heart that God is open so that she receives the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here, Ezra, he has a prepared heart. Why? Because God has opened his heart, and he loves the law of God. He loves God, the God of the law, and so he has a prepared heart. So he prepares his heart to seek the law of the Lord, also to do it. Notice that. So he's prepared his heart towards God's law. Now he's also doing God's law. And then lastly, he is going to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. He's got it in the right order. His heart's prepared. He's doing what the law says. And now he's qualified to teach the law to other individuals. So now we're finding that Artaxerxes is going to give him a letter. We've read the contents of that letter, how that God, uh, our God would provide great blessings to the land of Israel through Artaxerxes. Notice what he says. He says, all the gold you can find in Babylon, you just take it. He says, and when you need more, you just write. And then he begins to give out measures of silver, measures of wheat, and so forth. But then in verse 22, notice it says, under 100 talents of silver to 100 measures of wheat. Now, if he's going to go beyond this, he's obviously going to have to get uh, permission. But what he's uh, giving him now should be sufficient. So he says, under 100 talents of silver, to 100 measures of wheat, to 100 baths of wine, to 100 baths of oil, and notice this, and salt without prescribing how much. Salt without prescribing how much. If the Lord will bless us the rest of the time, and I realize I've taken a lot of time in introduction, I'd like to look at that last phrase. Again, he says, and you're also to have salt without prescribing how much. I've never noticed that verse uh, before this week. Uh, it's interesting to me. For some reason, that stood out. Why in the world would he limit these other things, but salt would have no limit? Now you say, well, because salt's cheap. Well, it may be today, but it wasn't then. Salt in that day and time was very costly. In fact, uh, it was used as currency at times. It could actually be used to transact financial business. In fact, the Roman Empire many times paid their soldiers wages in the form of salt. So it's not that salt was uh, not, uh, not valuable. It was very valuable. So why then would the king, Artaxerxes, say you can have salt without limit? Well, salt in the Bible is very important. And if the Lord will bless us the rest of this time, I'd like to look why it's so important. Now, in our day and time, we just think about it for seasoning. And I do enjoy it for seasoning. I like food that is uh, well salted. <laughs> I want it flavorful. Uh, I enjoy the flavor of salt. Uh, now, my uh, doctor doesn't like that I use as much that I do, but I see that in the Bible it's apparently a good thing, so I don't believe what all they say about it. Uh, I think if it's in moderation, which I'm probably not doing, but in moderation, I also know this. Some people don't eat salt, and they have problems because they don't have enough salt. Now, you can go too far with it. And the Bible says, let your moderation be known to all men, for the Lord's at hand. Uh, but anyway, salt is a very good thing. But in our day and time, we don't see the value of it like they did in Bible times. 
But I can even go back to the life of my great-grandmother, and she would tell me things that they would do with salt and how important it was before refrigeration. One of the main uh, elements of salt that it was used for was it was a great preservative. They would take meat like the apostles. Uh, when they would catch those fish on the Sea of Galilee, you had to eat that fish very quickly, or the other thing you could do is you could pack it in salt. That salt would preserve it. It would keep it from spoiling. That's one of the main things about salt. It keeps something from spoiling. Now, something that's already spoiled, it cannot recover. But something that has not yet spoiled, it can preserve it from spoiling. That's a key thing about salt. Again, if it's already spoiled, salt can do nothing for it. But if it hasn't yet spoiled, it can preserve it. It can keep it. And so uh, salt, again, in Bible days was very, very precious. In the service of the temple, it was also very, very precious. And this is why that Artaxerxes says that they would have salt without prescribing how much. Because in the book of Leviticus chapter 2, you're going to find that God is going to tell uh, Moses that of the salt, uh, said, every oblation, verse 13, of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offers, offerings thou shalt offer salt. Now, again, that's a verse I've just read right over most of my life. Notice again what the Lord tells Moses. He says, every oblation, every oblation of thy meat offering, thou shalt season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings, thou shalt offer salt. Now, you're going to find in the Bible at least three times that salt is linked with a covenant. Here in Leviticus chapter 2, notice again, he says to us very clearly, he says that the salt of the covenant of thy God shall not be lacking from the meat offering. Now, if you know anything about the offerings that were to go up, there were daily offerings, there were weekly offerings, and there were annual offerings for the house of God. So we've often talked about how many animals that took, how much blood was spilled, but how much salt would it take? Uh, to make sure that every offering that was brought before God had been salted in a way that God had commanded. It would take a lot of salt. And back in that day and time, they would go to a particular cliff and they would mine their own salt. Now, we often think of salt in today's terms of just white iodized table salt. And uh, that's not what it looked like in that day and time. In fact, in our home, we don't use that anymore. Uh, we use uh, what's called pink Himalayan salt. Uh, now... Tastes the same to me. Uh, they say it's better for you. I don't know. Tastes the same. Uh, I, do, I don't care. Lydia thinks it's healthier for us, so I'm all for it because it still tastes the same. So it's interesting to me, though. We buy it in five-pound bags. And we, when I get this five-pound bag, you can read across the front of it how this salt has been on the earth for uh, so many billions of years. But then down at the bottom it says expires by such and such date. Now, how in the world has salt expired? It's been here for billions of years. I never have understood that. Every time I read that, I get a little chuckle out of it and think, these fools, uh, you know, on one hand, they say it's billions of years old, but I better hurry up and use it. I know what they mean. Use it quick so you can buy more from us. That's what it's all about. But anyway, uh, that's probably more akin to what it looked like uh, back in Bible times. It wouldn't be the white bleach salt that uh, you buy, you know, Morton salt from the grocery store. Uh, anyway... So the children of Israel were to use this every day uh, with every offering, every week with the weekly offering, of course, annually with the annual offering. And God tells them that this would be a covenant of salt. Why a covenant of salt? Because once again, salt means a preservative, something that is perpetual. So that salt was a symbol 
of the ongoing covenant between God and the people of Israel. That a covenant was very important. Again, this is a promise that God makes to them. Now, if you read the Old Testament covenant, it did have some ifs with it. If thou shalt do this, thou shalt live. Now, the New Testament covenant, the covenant we have in the New Testament era, is not a covenant that's an if covenant. Covenant, The covenant that God has made with himself, the everlasting covenant, which we also call the new covenant, it doesn't have any ifs in it. Uh, it doesn't have any conditions in it. It doesn't have anything for you to do for it to be fulfilled. The Old Testament covenant, it had some ifs in it. It had some conditions in it. It had some things for the people of Israel to fulfill in order to be uh, blessed under the terms of that covenant. Again, the New Testament covenant is not the same. And thank God it's not. The New Testament covenant is not a covenant between God and men. It's a covenant between God and God, and we just happen to be the blessed uh, recipients of the terms of the covenant. Uh, the Bible calls it the everlasting covenant. It's a covenant that was made before the world began. It's that covenant, the Bible says in Hebrews, uh, I believe the 8th chapter, that Jesus was made the surety of a better testament of a better covenant. Uh, Jesus, he is the one who oversees a better covenant than what Moses oversaw in the Old Testament day. Moses could not fulfill and comply completely. I already mentioned how he did not go into the promised land. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, he fulfilled the terms of the covenant uh, to a jot and to a tittle. Everything needful to make sure all uh, clauses, if you will, of the covenant that he had made with the Father and with the Holy Ghost, he performed completely. And all the terms that the Father had, he performed completely. And all the terms that the Holy Spirit had, he is performing right now. That is, he's regenerating the people of God and preserving us through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ until the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so in the everlasting covenant, you have uh, God the Father keeping up his promise, God the Son keeping up his, and God the Holy Spirit uh, keeping up. And you and I have no part in that covenant that we have to maintain and keep up. God takes care of every aspect of it. And thank God that he does. But again, here in Le uh, Leviticus chapter 2, you have God commanding the children of Israel that every time they make an offering, they're to always suffer the salt of the covenant of God. Then, in other words, they're to sacrifice. Again, very costly. They're still to make this sacrifice. Again, it points to uh, it being a perpetual covenant, an ongoing covenant, one that would be a preserved covenant. And then you'll find later in the book of 1 uh, Chronicles chapter 13, in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, you find that uh, the, the nation of Israel has divided. Excuse me, 2 Chronicles chapter 13. I'll get to it in a second. <laughs> 2 Chronicles chapter 13. So the kingdom of Israel has divided. David has died, now Solomon has died. Solomon had been very sinful in having all his wives and allowing the pagan idolatry to enter into the land of Israel. So God let uh, Solomon know that the nation would be divided, but it wouldn't happen in his lifetime for David's sake. So you're going to find that at the, at the death of Solomon, that you're going to have his son Rehoboam. He is going to serve in Judah, and he will not hearken to his father's counselors. They let him know exactly how he ought to lead. They, he won't listen. Some young men come in and say, no, here's how you ought to do it. Well, they counsel him very unwisely to the point that the nation of Israel has a civil war and the nation divides. And so Jeroboam, he takes part of the nation and you have the ten northern tribes. So now you have Israel and Judah. 
So as you go forward reading in the book of uh, Chronicles or Kings and you see two lines of kings, it's because the nation is divided. The northern ten tribes, often referred to as Israel, uh, sometimes Ephraim, and then you have the southern two nations, uh, two uh, tribes called Judah. Now Judah, for the most part, will try to maintain uh, the worship at the house of God. They don't always do so. And in fact, as you read through the list of kings, you're going to find that Judah had good and bad ones. More bad than good, but occasionally they'd had very good kings. When you look at Israel's lineage of kings, they never had the first good king, not one. And you're going to find that they ordained their own priest outside the tribe of Aaron. They ordained their own worship. They raise up their own altar. They take on their own types of sacrifices. Uh, they try to do things in the name of God, but they do it their own way, thinking they're pleasing God. Well, the time comes now that uh, Rehoboam dies. It says in the chapter before, this is Second Chronicles chapter 12, that Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, and his son Abijah reigned in his stead. Now it says in the 18th year that King Jeroboam, so now this has been 18 years in the division. You have Abijah who is reigning over Judah. Now he reigns for three years. He will be the father of Asa. Now Asa will be a good king. His father's not a good king. Asa will be a good king. He only reigns for three years. But because of David's sake, and you can find this in uh, the book of Kings, for David's sake, you're going to find that God blesses this man in spite of how sinful that he was. So there comes a point between these two kings that they're going out to battle. They're uh, firming up a war plan. You have uh, Abijah and Jeroboam. They come out together. You have Judah brings 500, excuse me, 400,000 men. You find that Jeroboam from Israel, he brings 800,000 men. Two to one. How would you like to face off those odds? Two to one odds. He's got 800,000, Judah has 400,000, and here they come to face off one with another. But when they come out there, notice what Jer excuse me, Abijah says. He says in verse 5 of 2 Chronicles chapter 13, he says, Ought ye to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? Question mark. So here is Abijah, he's speaking to Jeroboam over there in Israel. He says, don't you know, or ought you to know, that the Lord God of Israel, he gave the kingdom of Israel to David, not to Jer Jeroboam. was not of the lineage of David. He didn't have uh, the right to sit upon the throne. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, he gave the kingdom of Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons. Notice again, by a covenant of salt, meaning it's a perpetual promise. What were the last words of David recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 23? He says, although my house be not so with God. He said, he had made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure. He says, this is all my hope, all my salvation, although he make it not to grow. So David says, my house isn't like it ought to be, but God has made with me an everlasting covenant. It's ordered in all things and sure. And you can go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And find where God made promise to David and also to Solomon that of the loins of David there would uh, be a man to sit upon his throne uh, forever. Now he has pointed ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ in that promise. But here you have this man. He knows the word of God well enough to know that God had made a covenant with Saul saying that there would be a king out of the loins of David uh, to sit upon the throne of Judah uh, going forward forever. He remembered what God had promised. Notice again, he says, here is a covenant that God made with salt once again, showing it's a preserved covenant or promise that God has made. And so uh, he says, it's at Jeroboam, it says, uh, um, 
the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against his Lord. He says, and there are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and tenderhearted and could not withstand. He's just rehearsing uh, the civil war. He says, and now ye think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, and ye be a great multitude, and there are with you golden calves, which Jeroboam made for you, for gods? Have ye not cast out the priest of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and have made you priest after the manner of the nations of the other lands, so that whosoever coming to consecrate himself with a young bullet and seven rent, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods? You know, I was just, uh, I know folks are tuning in, but anyway, I saw just this week where a young father, and I can understand, a young father was very happy that his son had given his life to the Lord Jesus Christ and was baptized. And he was so excited because that church allowed that daddy to baptize his son. That's very common now uh, in uh, so-called churches here that you don't have to be an ordained minister of the gospel to baptize somebody. That's about what's going on here in the land of Israel. That's what he's just let us know. He says, you've got priests that aren't priests, and you basically let anybody that comes up uh, serve in the role of a priest. Well, that's what's happening today when uh, a father is able to baptize his own children and he's not come under the hands of a presbytery. Uh, when somebody can administer the ordinance of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, without having gone through the biblical, uh, uh, what God has commanded, that uh, ordained men lay their hands and ordained men to uh, take care of the ordinances of the church, what's happened? We basically allow people to come in and serve as priests however they want to. Well, that's what's going on in the land of Israel. And so you find it. He is uh, calling them out for this. He says, but as for us, this is verse 10. The Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. And the priests which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business. We're maintaining, he says, what God has commanded us. And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. The showbread also they set in order upon the pure table, and the candlestick of gold with the lamps thereof to burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but ye have forsaken him. Then he says, And behold, God himself is with us for our captain and his priest with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you, O children of Israel. Fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for ye shall not prosper. Now, again, this man is a wicked man. He only reigns for three years, but he speaks a lot of truth. He understands that there is still going on in Jerusalem what God has ordained. He says, and I am the rightful king because of a covenant that God made with David. It was a covenant of salt. And he says, here we stand before you today, and you have completely abandoned everything that God has commanded you. And so the Bible says that there was ambushment set by uh, Israel. And so they set men before and men behind. And the Bible goes on, it says, When Judah looked back, behold, the battle was before and behind, and they cried unto the Lord. Notice what they do. They cried unto the Lord, and the priests sounded with the trumpets. Then the men of Judah gave a shout, and as the men of Judah shouted, it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam. And all Israel before Abijah and Judah, and the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. And you keep reading, you'll find that 500,000 of that 800,000 were slain that day. Uh, you would think two to one odds would give everything that Israel needed. But they did not take into account that they were standing against God himself. And God had made a covenant with David. This again, a covenant made with Saul. It was a perpetual, ongoing, preserved covenant promise that God made. And so God was going to maintain it whether this man, Abijah, was living up to the terms of the covenant or not. 
Now God would bring him down later again. He would only serve for three years and God would remove him out of the way and Asa would rise up and he would walk in a way that pleased God. But God yet still preserved what he had promised and there that day that army was put to flight by the hand of God. The children of, Israel, the children of Judah, they honored the Lord. They followed his way and God stood up and God defended them. Now then we look for a moment in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 19, one of the most uh, infamous stories about salt in all the Bible. <laughs> you recall that uh, Lot is living in a place he shouldn't have been living. He's living in a city where he should have never dwelt. The Bible lets us know that his herdmen and the herdmen of Abraham had grown to such a point that they were striving against one another. So Abraham comes to Lot. He says, let there be no strife between us, for we be brethren. And I would that we'd always remember what Abraham said. If you get to a point, Amos says, can two walk together except they be agreed? No. Uh, there comes a point that on essential things, if we cannot be agreed, we cannot walk together. But that doesn't mean that we have to strive against each other. So here he says, we're brethren, let us not strive. They were in a point where they couldn't walk together anymore. So you know what Abraham does? He says, if you want to go to the right, you go to the right, and I'll go to the left. But if you want to go to the left, that's fine, then I'll go to the right. You choose. Uh, Abraham was very gracious, very tender that day. Well, the Bible says that Lot, he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the plains of Jordan, that they were well watered. You know what he's thinking? He's calculating. He's saying, well, this is a place where I'm going to have great financial gain. Well, the truth of the matter is he was going to have great financial loss. So he goes out there. Remember, his herdmen were so great, great enough to uh, contend with the herdmen of Abraham. Now, Abraham was a very wealthy man. Think in Genesis chapter 14. He wouldn't even take to uh, the thread of a shoe latch at anything from the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah lest they should say that they had made Abraham rich. Abraham was a very wealthy man. In fact, in Genesis chapter 15, God reminds him, even though he's wealthy, he says, Abraham, fear not, for I am thy shield, I am your prince, he said, and I am your exceeding great reward. I don't know if Abraham was getting close to forgetting that his wealth was sufficient to take care of him or not, but God reminds him, he says, I'm your protector, and I am your great blessing. Well, anyway, he says, if you want to go to the right, you go to the right. If you want to go to the left, go to the left. He looks to uh, the plains of Jordan, and they're well watered. The Bible says he pitched his tent towards Sodom. So he pitches his tent to start with towards Sodom. But by uh, the time that uh, Abraham has to go rescue him, he's already done more than just pitching his tent towards Sodom. He's moved into the city. And in Genesis chapter 14, when four kings rise up against, excuse me, when five, yeah, four kings rise up against uh, five kings, you're going to find that Lot is going to ta be taken captive and all his goods spoiled. Abraham hears about it. Now, these weren't massive kingdoms. These were city-states. Uh, so there was a king over every city. But uh, there were four kings that were stronger than the five. Two of those had to be the king over Sodom and the king over Gomorrah. And the Bible tells us that word comes to Abraham that his nephew Lot has been kidnapped and all of his goods taken in all of this confusion and battle. So he inquires the Lord, and the Lord tells him to go, and he takes 318 trained household servants. Think about that. 318 trained household servants. Abraham goes as the captain, and they go out and they rescue not only Lot and his family, but also those five kings from the four and uh, take them back home. So here you find Lot is rescued. His goods are restored. 
by Genesis chapter 18, when God comes to Abraham to let him know that in a year he would have a son, he also uh, inquires within himself, this is God speaking to himself, that should he hide this thing that he was going to do? Uh, he says that uh, he would not, so he begins to talk with Abraham about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can remember the conversation. Because Abraham, he says, well, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Peradventure, perhaps, there's 50 righteous in the city. Would you destroy this uh, city if there were 50? The Lord says, no, I'll spare the city. And if you remember, he gets all the way down to 10. Well, there wasn't 10 righteous in the city. So these two angels, they go into the city of Sodom for the express purpose of getting Lot and his family out of there. Those two angels, well, and then to follow it up to bring down fire and brimstone from heaven. So Lot is drug out of that city, essentially. And as they go out of there, Genesis chapter 19, they were told not to look back. And it wasn't about she was curious about seeing God destroy the city. The point, like the Lord says, any man that has put his hand to the plow in the kingdom of God and looks back is not fit for the service of the kingdom of God. You know what she was doing? Her affection was looking back towards Sodom. That's where her heart was. So she looks back. That means she looked back with affection. She looked back with fondness. She looks back with regret over having to leave that place. And so what does God do to her? He turns her to a pillar of salt. Why did God choose salt? Because here was the moral decay of that place. And what is one thing to help stop decay? It is salt. And so God uses an emblem of something to help stop decay uh, uh, to turn her into a pillar of that woman should have just kept pressing forward, but instead she looks back. God uses the very emblem of the thing that could have preserved that place and turns her into that. Uh, now we turn to Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus Christ in his Sermon on the Mount, what we often term that sermon where he goes into the Beatitudes, he lets us know that you and I likewise are salt as we live in this world. Matthew chapter 5 verse 13, he says, Ye are the salt of the earth but <laughs> he said if the salt has lost his savor wherewith shall it be salted as thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men and he says you are the light of the world a city that is set on a hill it cannot be hid he says neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel but on a candlestick and it giveth light unto all that are in the house let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven. Now, I've read a lot of thoughts as to why Jesus compared us to salt. So I say, well, because salt is light, it's talking about our purity. Well, salt in Bible days, again, was not white, so it's not talking about that. Well, you know, we're to bring flavor to society. Again, seasoning was not the main aspect of salt. It was caught, but more than that, it was to try to prevent decay. And that's your purpose and my purpose in this world. He says, ye are the salt of the earth. You know, we all keep looking to Washington, D.C. We all keep looking to Tallahassee and places like that to preserve us. Now, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible lets us know that our speech is to be seasoned with salt. What does that mean? It means that what I say ought to try to prevent decay. It ought to try to preserve relationships, preserve friendships, uh, preserve folks' uh, confidence in the Lord, that the things that I speak, the things you speak, hopefully uh, brings a preserving effect. So our speech is to always be seasoned with salt. That doesn't mean we're to use salty language as some folks uh, uh, term it today. No, our speech is to be done in such a way 
that hopefully we're preserving relationships. We're preserving people's uh, confidence in the Lord, uh, their joy in the house of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we ought to speak. Well, here in Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus says uh, that you and I have the responsibility to be a preserving impact in this world. But all too often, instead of trying to live up to what this says, uh, we keep looking to the politicians in this world who do not use words seasoned with salt. And I don't care which side you're talking about. Very few politicians uh, follow what this says. And yet the Lord says if there's going to be any preservation of this world uh, from moral decay, it's not going to come from politicians. It's not going to come from folks in the world. It's going to come from you, and hopefully it's going to come from me. It's going to come from us living as the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded that we live. And hopefully the way we live will then impact others. It will spread abroad and hopefully have a preserving impact on the society in which we live. We can't blame Washington. We can't blame uh, uh, Tallahassee. You can't blame Bartow or Tampa. Uh, you have to only blame ourselves if we see uh, the moral fabric of this country continue uh, to fall apart. You ought to expect that it's going to fall apart from the impact and influence of those in this world. That's just the way it is and the way it always has been. It's been very rare uh, that God has used political revival to turn the hearts of people uh, what God has used is moral and religious revival to turn the hearts of people. And that begins with every child of God who's under the sound continually of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ of living their lives in such a way as he goes on to say that we are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. He says, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. But what do they do? Put it on a candlestick and it giveth light unto the, those that are in the house. He says in verse 16, let your light so shine then before men. Here's the preserving effect. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So you and I, we are the salt of the earth. But notice what he says, but if the salt has lost his savor. The interesting thing about salt, if you took a pot of water and you boiled and you just threw salt in it. That water boils till it boils dry. If you look closer, you feel around, you're going to feel uh, some crystals in there. That salt will have turned back to salt. It may be dissolved, but let that evaporate, and there's going to be some salt crystals in there. In other words, pointing once again to its preservative power. Uh, it even is able, it preserves itself. But you know, the only way that, a, that salt can lose its savor, again, he says, ye are the salt, of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor. What good is salt that has no taste? It can't preserve anymore. It's of no use. He says, here's what we do with it. He says, we just cast it out and trot it underfoot. The only way you get rid of the taste of salt is you add other elements and other minerals in. Every once in a while, I will get a bowl of soup and I'll add salt. I'll get just how I like it. And then I decide, well, I'd like a little more soup and put more in, but I didn't put more salt in, and all of a sudden it doesn't have that taste anymore. What's happened? I've overwhelmed it with something else. And if you're not careful and you let yourself be overwhelmed with the things of this world, the thought process of this world, the activity of this world, the things that you'll hear in this world, see in this world, the places that you can go in this world, what's going to happen? It'll be, you'll be watered down, if we can put it that way, and you no longer will have the savor that you're supposed to have. And then what good are you? 
If you've been called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be a salt in this world, to be a preserving impact in the moral decay that's continually going on in a society, if you're not able to do that because you've allowed this society to overwhelm you instead of you impacting it, what good are we? If that's our purpose, that's what we've been called for, well, that's not going to happen. All of a sudden, the no, only use we're good for is to be trodden underfoot, and before long, that's actually what's going to happen. We'll just be trodden underfoot by those in this world and completely ignored. But rather, if we will do exactly like Jesus says and not allow ourselves to be deluded by the things going on in this world, not be saturated by worldly and ungodly things, not be impacted and influenced by the wickedness of the environment in which we live, then we will be the light of the world. We will be that city set upon a hill. We will be that light on a candle which then will light the house. And we will be those individuals that let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Now turning back very quickly to Ezra chapter 7, when Artaxerxes the king, he wrote that letter. He says, salt without measure. He lets them know basically you're going to need unlimited preservative. <laughs> and that's exactly what you and I need as we live in this world. We need unlimited grace by the Lord Jesus Christ to live in such a way that be honoring to him so that our life will have impact in this world and that our speech will always be seasoned. If Artaxerxes the king gave a letter to Ezra and he says, sought without prescribing how much, then I certainly believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the king of all kings, will give you all that you stand in need of uh, to do exactly what he says to be the salt of this world and to be the light of this world and always have your speech seasoned with salt so hopefully you're preserving and not destroying. You're building up instead of tearing down. You're encouraging instead of discouraging. You're hopefully building hope in folks instead of bringing folks down. And I'm saying that to me just as much as to anybody else. And I promise you, if you'll try to live your life in that way, the Lord will continue to bless you. He has endless measure. means he always has supply. And that which you stand in need of in your Christian walk, he's going to provide that each and every day that we live in this world. Uh, we need his preserving power. And then with his preserving power, then we just simply live how he's commanded us. And hopefully then we, in our small corners of the world, can continue to preserve that area from the moral decay, from the disasters that are going on, from the impact of society that's turning us so far away from the word of God to a place that looks so foreign especially for those old, old enough, even myself, to remember things being a much better situation than we're in now. We can complain about it. We can talk about it and say, well, if we'll just vote the right way and put the right people in office, if we just put this person, that, that won't solve it. It hasn't yet, and it won't then. But what will is asking the Lord Jesus Christ every day to help you live as the salt of this earth and then be careful how you speak careful how you live so that what you do brings honor and glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully then you encourage other believers and others that have been born of the Spirit of God to live in the same way. And then through that, hopefully we could see this world preserved from the decay we see all around us. May God bless you today.